millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Other Hand. It's Monday, so... For the last time, we're going to be speaking to Nathan Johns of the Irish Times about World Cup rugby. The last time, for very obvious reasons, we had a final. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the World Cup in general, where Nathan thinks it leaves rugby and the various initiatives that have been proposed for the next competition, for a new competition, and what World Rugby might do to make the game just a little bit more attractive because I know that there has been, not least from me, some criticisms of the way the game is played at the moment and whether or not it's attractive to the to the neutral, let us say. And I'll also want to talk about Leinster's start to the season. We've had two games now, a loss and a win. Great to look forward to getting back to Leinster rugby. My own personal perspective is that I've always enjoyed club rugby more than I've enjoyed the international scene actually for all sorts of reasons but Friday nights at the RDS you can't beat them in in my opinion. So Nathan welcome thank you very much for giving us your time again. The match the final the worthy winners lots of controversy did South Africa deserve to win in your view? Yeah probably I think in a tournament that's been characterized by sides in the knockout stages barring the Argentina New Zealand wipeout which is irrelevant in this in this statement by, by and large in knockout games the tournament has been characterized by teams who play the most rugby in inverted commas so your your more attractive so to speak attacking sides um, have lost in, in knockout games and the reason I for that is because the opposition defense has always been really good and the opposition attack has always been just really efficient they capitalize on pretty much any time, opportunity they get you know every time they go to the 22 they come away with x number of points they're more efficient. The red zone efficiency is a big hot stat in rugby at the minute. And for once, we saw both sides being incredibly wasteful in the final. Two sides that had been, 
you know, you would normally say everyone was building this as a battle of styles. It's New Zealand's attack versus South Africa's kicking in defence. And they both kicked a hell of a lot and they both defended reasonably well throughout the tournament and in the final, which probably explains the low-scoring nature of the final. But they're both incredibly wasteful. You think of early in that, in that, uh, in that second half, South Africa missed two guilt-edged opportunities. One pass wasn't given when the man would have been in the corner and then there was a drop over the line when chasing a kick. And equally, New Zealand should have given a pass in the corner earlier so it, it just it was a bizarre game it kind of booked a lot of trends in the tournament in terms of two sides that had been uber efficient and probably on that metric deserved to be in the final did weren't efficient anymore so it's kind of hard to say who should have won who should, but i think anytime there's a red card and you're playing against south africa and you lose a forward against south africa and they've got seven forwards on the bench for the love of god i can't believe they did that you're always going to struggle even if you think south africa are playing poorly like as they did against england their bench will always come back in and do it so from that point of view i think yeah you lose your, your back row, you lose your captain, you lose a forward against South Africa when they've got seven monsters on the bench. It doesn't really matter how you play, you should lose that match. And that's ultimately what happened. New Zealand went further and probably played in the final better than any pundit, us two included, thought at the beginning of the tournament. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And part of that is they played the single best game they played in probably the last... World Cup cycle against Ireland when they needed to and the full credit for to them and we've discussed in the past how on another day you, you rinse and repeat that's 80 minutes into again and you probably get a different outcome eight times out of ten or whatever it was so there's a little bit of luck a little bit of they played well and they needed to they got a very lucky draw at the semi-final so I think once they beat Ireland it was a case of yeah they're, they're going to get to a final now so that was just the nature of the nature of the competition but um, yeah I think a lot of people didn't expect them to get past Ireland or South Africa, whoever they were going to play in that quarterfinal, and and they did, so they deserve a they, deserve, they certainly deserve a, a lot of credit um, for that. How they did it is they became a Joe Schmidt side. They kicked a lot more. They were a lot more efficient attacking, and they had a series of attacking strike plays um, that demolished Ireland, as 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 we lamented uh, a couple of weeks ago, and. They did all that while also allowing the Bowden Barretts, the Richie Mwangas, the time and space when it was on to, to attack and attack freely. You know, a lot of short attacking kicks were, worked wonders for them, better than any side of the tournament. So they they both went back to what they were good at, which was backing their their strike players and strike runners, while also tightening up a few things around break, their, you know, their breakdown work is a lot better. That's a key Schmidt staple. Um, like I said, the, the kicking game and territory game is a lot better. Another key Schmidt staple. So, you know, I don't. it, it wasn't just him. I think players elevated themselves to the competition as well but uh, yeah they they said a lot of people didn't back them to get to the final that is true this time last year or at least whenever the series win that ireland had against the all blacks down in new zealand the coach's job was under threat he's had quite a roller coaster ride how much of the success since that uh, low point was reached by new zealand losing that home series to ireland how much of that success is down to joe smith do you think Oh, it's impossible to quantify. It's it's a bit of an easy narrative, I think. Because well, Schmidt was a consultant during that series. That was when he was first called into the All Black setup because I think two of their coaches got COVID or, or something like that. And I think at that stage, New Zealand was still reasonably strict on what to do when you get COVID. So I think their coaches missed most of that series. So Schmidt was a consultant, again, in inverted commas, and then they kept them on full time. Look, Joe Schmidt's a very good coach. I think, as we saw with Ireland, um, his methods work for a limited period of time but but they but they do work and um, so if you want to you can certainly say yeah look New Zealand did a lot of things that Joe Schmidt teams do well but 
most successful teams do all those things really well. I mean, look at the World Cup winners. Um, they, you know, they kick the leather off and kick really well and have a really good set piece, really good breakdown, all these things. So it's 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 kind of hard to quantify. I think Schmidt, we all associate them with Schmidt because he was the one who really started focusing on detail in those areas of the game in Irish rugby. Um, but by and large, all good teams do all those things well. So it's it's it is hard to say, and you don't want to discredit the guy in charge because at the end of the day, he, he he's the one who 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 oversees everything Ian Foster. And like you said, he was under pressure and he, and he lost his job. I mean, he was told before this tournament that his contract wouldn't be extended. And under that cloud, he's, he's gone and led them to a, to a World Cup final. So, you know, they all deserve credit. But, you know, Schmidt definitely has had an impact. Probably easy to overplay it, but he definitely did, did something right. All right. Back to the game. Do you think that the critical red card and for South Africa yellow card were the right decisions? Yeah, I think so. I think... Kane was just far too upright. Again, no malice, but it doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, anytime you go into a collision standing that upright, you're just you're risking so much. Um, and you know it doesn't matter what the collision is. You're all in, in a game like that, in any game, but especially a game of that magnitude, you are trying to absolutely smash your man. So that mentality is fine. But if you go in with that mentality and you're standing that upright in the tackle, bent at the hips is the kind of key phrase referees use these days. If you're not bent at the hips, the tackler and you hit a guy in the head with that much force, you're screwed unless there was a late sidestep from the from the ball carrier. There wasn't right decision. And equally, I think the Sia Khaleesi one, yeah, I think that was right too because he was a little bit more bent at the hips. His head was down, looking to make contract. That was tricky because the ball carrier was jumping to catch the ball and he was on his way down. So he's, he's he, he thinks he's hitting him a little bit when the player is closer to ground than he is or on the ground and he's probably slightly off the ground. And equally, I think most of the force of that hit went into the ball rather than the player's head. So, again, World Cup final, if there's anything a referee can see that means he doesn't need to give red, he'll do it. There was that for the South African one. There wasn't that for the New Zealand one. So I, I don't think there are any complaints from do, either side. Do you think that there's any way that rugby could be made, first of all, easier to referee? No. And, and secondly, easier for numpties like me to understand refereeing decisions? Because... When you listen to your explanation, which is very reasonable, very understandable, and then I listen to lots of different talking heads around the world in newspapers and in studios, all with completely different interpretations. Yes, it was a red. No, it wasn't. That stock phrase, it's just a rugby incident. Leading commentators, analysts, or people purporting to be analysts say, well, there was no malice, as if that matters. So there's clearly a lot of people don't understand the rules, people who should understand the rules. What's going wrong, do you think? Well, you've made one of my points, which is that 90% of TV analysts are complete spoofers. Um, they just get guys on who, in some instances, were brilliant rugby minds and they just haven't watched any rugby in 10 years. Or guys who were big ex-players ex ex who just, they don't have the comfort of kind of analysing things when there's a camera on you. They just, you know, the best rugby players are not the best analysts. You know, a lot of rugby players went through their entire careers of just, here's your instruction, do it. There are a lot of rugby players who are brilliant analysts now. I don't want to label everybody, but I firmly believe in most sports, not just rugby, 90% of TV coverage is garbage. That answers that part of your question. The initial part is, I mean, I don't want to blame the blame the person who's suffering here, which in this case is is, is the, the innocent fan who doesn't know what's going on. But I mean, that Khaleesi one, the, the yellow that wasn't red, was explained quite well on the ref mic in that 
most of the force went through the ball. That, so I think, you know, that was, again, the case of, right, you might be in a loud pub and you don't hear the, the commentary, whatever it is. But that was, and that this, we had this conversation last week, I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before, about how, of all the sports, rugby does actually a very good job of micing up the referees so you know what their decision-making process is. And if you watch two or three matches, you hear the same buzzwords and phrases being used by referees, like bent the hips, which I used earlier. And as a result, if you build up that kind of small base of knowledge and you are listening to these guys live in action, it's pretty good. Now, it helps Wayne Barnes is probably the best communicator as a referee. It annoys a lot of people. A lot of people are thinking, what's he doing talking all the time? He's always shouting at the players. He calls them by their first name. He'll say, faff, kick, use the ball in the back of a mall or whatever it is. A lot of people don't like that, but he is very communicative. World Rugby clearly like that he's very communicative because he gets all the big gigs these days that when England aren't involved, I'm pretty sure he did the Champions Cup final or he has done a Champions Cup final recently involving Leinster. So again, it's a case of, I think it's a lot of people bitching and moaning about an issue that they are creating that doesn't really exist. Compared to other sports, rugby is incredibly good at explaining itself live and in action. Where they fall down is when, and as it hasn't happened so much during this World Cup, but in the last year to 18 months, is then when a guy doesn't get a red or does get a red, referee explains it really clearly, everyone's on board on the day, and then two days later, the sighting commissioner comes in and says something completely different. That's when things get confused, and that has happened a lot in the last 12 months. Not so much at this tournament, but it, it, it has been known to happen. I know that you wrote something about this, and you've alluded to it in your earlier remarks about uh, attack versus defence uh, and the rugby that's involved in both attacking and defending. And in my far more, far less analytical way, when I watched the final, I can't remember what minute it was, but it was well into the game. I exclaimed out loud, my God, finally, we're seeing some rugby played. Because up until that point, I felt that it wasn't a game of rugby. I'm not quite sure what it was. Obviously, it was the Rugby World Cup final. But you know what I mean by rugby being played, don't you? Mm, yeah, you mean not, not kicking. I mean, look, the baseball, in fact, is... New Zealand uh, kicked 61% of their possession and South Africa kicked 75%. I mean, those are still, when you think about it, has, so three times out of every four that South Africa have the ball, they decide to kick it. Now, not all, not all kicks are equal. I mentioned earlier, New Zealand, like their short attacking kicks, which I think are, they're not boring. Like, like some people would think a box kick is boring, a little dink over the top and a chip and chase because you've identified space is very different. And I wouldn't be against that. Again, it's that conversation of who you're appealing to. Look, South Africa played three knockout games. They won all three by one point. They're really close. They're, they're exciting because they're close. The England game aside, which for 70 minutes was incredibly dull, but not you blame England rather than South Africa for that because they kicked 93% of the time or whatever. I don't mind that. Uh, South Africa do try and play a little bit. Like you said, we saw it. There was a couple of backline strike moves where they went wide when New Zealand had a yellow... Uh, New Zealand were defending scrums at 14 men because of Sam Kane, and South Africa said, right, we're going to shift the ball wide. Um, and it nearly paid off a couple of times. So I think there's a balance. Again, that might just be the same conversation that we had last week where rugby aficionados are going to go, oh, well, it's all different toy contests. Aerial contests are still good to watch. Scrummaging contests are good to watch. Fierce breakdown contests are good to watch. But are they as good to watch for the neutral as somebody running 50 metres, throwing three offloads and scoring a wonderful try? Probably not. And that's the point I made in the piece that went up on Monday. That's up for World Rugby to decide who you catering your sport to. Are you trying to get these neutrals who only watch during the World Cup to come back? And if you are, which of course they are, is running rugby and 50 plays 40 
what's going to get them to come back or is it guaranteed tight contests which is the case when South Africa play but I also I don't know how you legislate for that I don't yeah, you can't you, you, you can't you can't limit you can't put a limit on how many times people can kick and again this is very simplistic kicking wins matches yes uh, but there's kicking, exciting there's kicking and there's kicking isn't there you just mentioned two different types of kick there's the dink over the top into space which in my simplistic language correct me if you think this is the wrong interpretation I would call that an attacking kick Whereas an awful lot of the kicking is kicking long and waiting for your opponents, either on this kick or the next kick or the kick after. What you're waiting for is for them to make a mistake rather than for you to, you're going to defend well when they come back at you. But the aim of the long kick is simply to force your opponents into an error, to concede a penalty, to concede a turnover. It's about trying to make somebody else make a mistake. Now, the aficionado will say that's really interesting rugby. It's very tactical. And it makes a lot of sense playing within the rules of the game. But boy, it, it doesn't make for great watching, does it, for the neutral? Well, that's the point, isn't it? And are we talking about neutrals? Are we talking about people who don't watch a lot of rugby and only watch every four years, only watch when the Six Nations is on, when the World Cup is? Because there's all very different. And how you cater, it's, it's, impo- it's an impossible task to try and cater to everybody. Would everyone come? I mean, look at, look at what happened in, uh, up in... Um, up in Glasgow last week when Leinster lost. Uh, for the most part, that was a really tight game, one score, end-to-end, tries after tries after tries. But, I mean, I can guarantee you not a lot of people are watching that. And that might be because it's people are snobbish around watching domestic versus international rugby. There was It was on during the World Cup window, all that. But I don't know if that caters to people either. Look, look super rugby is end-to-end. Defence is very much not a part of the game in the competition between the Australian and New Zealand sides. And their viewing numbers are awful. Like a rugby... Domestic, whatever international rugby, domestic rugby in Australia is dying completely. So I'm not quite sure that it's as simple as just have lots of running, attacking, scintillating rugby, um, which there was plenty of in this game, by the way. It just didn't always lead to scores, which I think is a, is, a, is a crucial difference. I don't think it's as easy as to say, bring all that in and everyone will call a sudden flock to the, to the World Cup and, 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 and stay engaged. At the end of the day, the biggest indicator is, is your country playing? And if so, have you got a serious chance of winning? And even if you're not a rugby person, you will watch. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A basic objective for world rugby at the beginning of this tournament would be to come out today with rugby globally slightly more popular than it was going in. Do you think they will have achieved that objective? Yeah, I think so. I think, the, like I said, like you can, you can quibble all you like about South Africa and they do play a lot more attacking rugby than they did when they won four years ago. 
for what it's worth. Not that I'm interested in defending them, but just think it's important to highlight. Like you have three games involving them and knockout rugby where they win by points. Like doesn't matter what happens in those games. There's at least 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 10 to 15 at the end of those games where they're great television. Um, that that does wonders. The Argentina New Zealand semi-final did was the opposite of that. But then you had two massive quarterfinals, um, which may have because Ireland and France got knocked out. That may have dropped some eyeballs, uh, at least definitely in the ground because you lost the the hordes of French and Irish crowds. But a lot of people would have watched those quarterfinals, going bloody hell, these are good. I'll watch these again. Um, so. I, I think so. I think it was a pretty good tournament. I think it was better than four years ago. I think there were better and a higher number of top quality teams. It's disappointing that some of those clashes came as early as they did in the tournament. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it was a it was a pretty good tournament. And yeah, look, you can quibble about the style of rugby that South Africa played, but you know, I don't not I don't not enjoy watching them play. I prefer watching them play now than I did when they last won the World Cup. I think that. All right, my uh, last my last attempt at a question in, in this vein, rugby to an old fashioned dinosaur like me should be mostly, and I grant you, not entirely, but mostly about tries and the, the teams that score the most tries should, on average, win. And I've no idea whether that is actually empirically true or not. But how many tries did we get in that final? One. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's uh, that's 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 what South Africa we're playing. Yeah, and th- to me that's disappointing. And could it be as simple as I? You know, I remember. I'm old enough to remember when a try was three points, and then they moved it to four, and then they moved it to five. Should it be six points? I don't think that would make a massive difference. You don't. No. Because at the end of the day, with, when you have the resources, the playing resources that South Africa have in terms of destructive capabilities, size, athleticism, power, breakdown, brilliance, all that, when you have that, it doesn't matter how much a try is worth, is you're still bad, you're still really good at stopping people from crossing. And if as long as that's true, it doesn't really matter how many they're worth, because as long as you only give up one a game, you should be fine because you'll go three, six, nine, twelve, and maybe nick a try yourself with your mole or whatever it is. So no, I don't think that has a map. That, I don't think that's going to stop South Africa from doing what they do. Look, I, again, I said this point before. You need different styles. You need different varieties. Um, rugby for a long time, around 2017, 2018, less so, less so in that World Cup, but rugby was going through a real dearth of attacking game in international. International rugby was dire. You know, when Andy Farrell kind of was starting out in his Ireland coach uh, post post world cup so that's what that's 2020 sorry and um, it was a dire eddie jones's england were playing what steve borthwick did last week on steroids like it was you know wales were doing something similar ireland were kind of still in the judgment era not really trying to figure out what they were doing had no idea international rugby was dire it's in a much better place now ireland plays some really good rugby france play, kicked leather off it but counteract that by when they do deciding to go are absolutely scintillating and brilliant new zealand or new zealand they always will be that so and all the lower teams like fiji samoa they all throw the ball around even teams like portugal uruguay who didn't win anything but were amazing to watch in this tournament so rugby as an international spectacle on your metrics and logic are is in a much better place than it was for five years three three four years ago is it an issue that one team still wins by doing not the opposite by doing something very different no, because most everyone else is doing something that will attract and will create a, a good product again. And it was, it was what I'm sure you will call it as. But at the end of the day, I mean, South Africa have got a once in a generation crop of athletes and they've been building for this World Cup for the last like five, six years. They just happened to peak a little bit early in 2019, but they've 
sustain that and become far, far better. Will they be this good in four years' time? Probably not. Will they be able to replicate this in four years' time? Probably not. And then all of a sudden, all the attacking teams are winning and everybody's happy. It's it's cyclical. It's generational. Um, and we are in the middle of a attacking renaissance, so to speak, in, in international rugby. It just so happens that South Africa are just even so good that even the best ball-playing teams can't can't deal with that. And that happens. That's, the sport is cyclical. In terms of making the sport more popular, as you rightly say, there are so many different audiences that you have to think about who are you trying to appeal to. I think that one of the things that, that world rugby must think about is a point I've made when, as, a, as, a, as an adult, as a middle-aged man, I watched my first GAA game. And intellectually, I could appreciate the skill. I could appreciate the passion and see that it was an extraordinary feat of athleticism, this GAA final or semi-final thing that I was watching. But I didn't grow up with GAA. And for me, for most sports, it's about the one that you grow, grow up with. And that, rep, that gives you the core support that's all, always, give or take, going to be a supporter, particularly of the bigger games, the bigger tournaments. Those kinds of men and women who grew up with the sport will always have a thing for it. And then you must keep attracting those. And that, of course, means that you must keep people playing and watching in the younger age groups. And that's something, of course, that Ireland in general and Leinster in particular do spectacularly well. I was speaking to a school teacher uh, in Wales the other day, and he was listing off the schools that used to produce great rugby players that don't play rugby at all anymore. And I think that goes a long way to explaining Wales's difficulties. There are lots of other reasons. This is not a simple, simple story. But I think getting your core base right is something that that has to be done. You talked about the Australian team. I mean, rugby has only ever been, I think, the fourth or the fifth sport in Australia. I mean, tennis, Aussie rules, even cricket comes ahead of rugby in Australia, doesn't it? Yeah. Always, historically. So yeah, they've, and- they've always struggled from a core baseline support. I remember being in not Sydney. Not during the 90s. Not during the 90s. I remember turning up in Sydney in 2001 for the third Lions test and going out with a bunch of Aussies who didn't even know that the Lions were touring, let alone that I was there actually to see a game rather than on business, which was my my pretense, my, my device for getting. So anyway, so it's, it's, I think it's, it's about getting the grassroots of the game right. And that leads to, to sort of my f- final, final question about World Rugby, this proposal to expand the tournament next time to have a new tournament, a Nations Cup. What do you think of all of that? Well, where do you start? Well, first of all, they've increased the number of teams at the next World Cup and added, they've, I think they've gotten rid of one pool game and added a last 16 game. That is like, I mean, it's not pure. It's never just for one reason. But the main reason for that is to make sure that the US don't fall off a cliff again and fail to qualify as they have done for this World Cup because that's, that's disastrous for their growth market because everybody who's not already in the States is obviously trying to get a foothold in the states and um, the other market everyone wants to get a foothold in is is asia but that's that's not going to happen anytime soon with with rugby because it's not embedded it is at least somewhat embedded in the states so that's why that happened and that's a smart business decision if a little bit of governing body manip- manipulation they said they're going to have the draw to a year out from the world cup instead of two years so in theory that solves the draw problem that we've lamented plenty of times and in terms of the nation's league i mean yeah, it, it's it. Part of it is sad because I do think those three match tours to the south of the hemisphere in like July, what Ireland did last year, uh, in, you know, that's gone now. You'll play three different southern hemisphere teams and, and a tour. That's a little bit sad that those tours did have jeopardy of you know one nil, one one, two one over the course of three weeks, and were, were quite interesting. I guess maybe that there were those are only interesting between a handful of teams that can go down there and compete. 
nine times out of ten southern hemisphere te- northern hemisphere teams can't go down there and compete so maybe that that gets rid of that issue um i mean the big issue is what are you going to do with the sides that you're locking out that you're, you're saying you're not going to be in the top tier are you going to give those guys friendlies or or out of competition matches to you know you're, you're i think fiji and japan will be in the top tier but everyone below that's so your tongas your samoas even someone like portugal who all of a sudden everybody wants to watch loads because they were so scintillating to watch at this tournament like what's going to happen with these guys are they just going to get shut out into the next world cup and then they'll play play three games get spanked but peak in the last game because they've had some proper rugby and everyone goes oh hang on these guys are actually good and then you're on this four-year cycle so those they're, they've been locked out of the top tournament of playing the best teams for, for the foreseeable future i think until 2030 i'm right in saying so um that's really disappointing unless there are backup plans to to give countries like that opportunities but if there's one thing we've learned and this is again going back to the american model where it's just you have 30 franchises in a league and they all play each other and that never changes the one thing that creates financial stability is is no promotion and relegation and that means you're guaranteed to be there and guaranteed to make money so the top nations don't care because they'll never get stuck in a situation of being in a in a lower league and it's just it's the same as what happens in premiership rugby they ring fenced it ring, ring fencing is is the norm in, in sport these days things like football are the outlier because they're just so culturally embedded it'll never like the premier league will never not have re- relegation despite what the american owners try to do when they form breakaway super leagues and, and so to speak so it's it, it makes fun it, it makes so financially sense. it's so financially catastrophic for a team to be relegated from the premier league yeah, I wonder how sustainable that is going forward, given how, you know, money is everything in sport these days. Yeah, but how many Premier League clubs have gone bust or championship clubs have gone bust? Whereas look what happened in the Premiership, they ring fenced it and they've still lost two teams. Um, so that's 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 a different, maybe the, the comparison isn't an apt one. But to answer your question, I think, look, it's intriguing. It creates another level of intrigue. It's now not just you play a one-off test match against South Africa and New Zealand in November they have wider context. I don't think those games needed wider context. I still think everybody going to the Aviva last with November to watch Ireland play the Springboks was completely captivated by that the before, middle, during and after of that game. Maybe some other markets do need the context. I don't know. But it, it's another competition. It's another thing to strive for. And I, my only worry is that if you look at some sports, having these competitions every single season dilutes them like... I don't want to go into cricket because that's not this audience, but cricket has a global event in some format every year and this current World Cup going on and it's just there's a bit of a meh reaction to it because it's every year instead of every two years, every four years. I don't know if this dilutes the importance of a World Cup, for example. I suspect not because it's they, what they've done is they've said we're only going to do this when there's no Lions tour and there's no World Cup. So there's limited window for this to happen. But I don't know. They clearly thought something needed to change. I didn't necessarily see it, but that might be because I'm in a bubble of whenever Ireland play in Ireland, it's the biggest show in town. Other countries, it's not the case. The Again, experiment of having Italy in the Six Nations has failed, basically. Well, it didn't. Well, it didn't fail for up until what the noughties? I mean, Italy had a great team a while ago where they were beating Wales and Scotland. And yeah. I'm talking know. about now. It's 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 a, yeah, it's a, bit well, of a joke now. It it has it, it, even if it worked for a while. Overall, strategically, it hasn't worked, and the, the oh, idea that, that you that's were... their fault for not investing in Italy properly. Well, it's somebody's fault for sure. But uh, whichever way they do it, um, whether it's these new tournaments, the uh, broadened out more teams in the World Cup, somebody has got to put their thinking cap on for how these smaller nations become more competitive. And I, I just hope that this is it. I don't know, but I hope it is. Well, the Italian experiment, if that's put them off, because I said, look, we have given a smaller country access to playing tier one nations and they've done so poorly. 
I, that's 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 the wrong way to look at that because that's what happens if you have tier one an Italian side playing against tier one nations with a poorly resourced domestic structure and no well, that's real. That's it, isn't it? That goes back to my point about the roots. If you don't have people in schools in Italy playing rugby uh, over long prolonged periods of time, if you don't develop that side of the game, the national team is never going to develop, is it? Yeah, well, Italy, they also I think we're, we're, they're not pulling the plug on Italy because it's usually on the Six Nations, but they're pulling the plug on that idea very early. I mean, Italy have done really well at underage rugby for the last couple of years. So like, it, it, it works. It's just a case of, you know, are you measuring it based on can they come fifth or fourth in the Six Nations, which they did 10 years ago, or are you measuring it on, right, they are doing well at under-20s championships all of a sudden because the sport is more embedded at, at a younger age group. Um, now, you don't necessarily need, and I think you do, to give those guys something to aspire to, you do need to have regular fixtures against proper countries because um, those guys see a proper tournament, proper media coverage, proper culture involved, and they go, yeah, I want some of that. Is a, you know, Tonga, the Pacific Islands, the Pacific Islands are bad examples because rugby is embedded, but is a 15-year-old Portuguese kid, after watching Portugal do work wonders and beat Fiji at a World Cup, is he going to look and go, yeah, I want to go off and play against Samoa, and I want to go off and play against Tonga, no disrespect to them, or is he going to go, well, hang on, Portugal get a test match every year against whoever finishes last in the Six Nations or we'll get a June game against an Ireland B team. Yeah, I want some of that. That's, I think, what needs to happen as well. As well. Go and fix your competition and if you think it's going to make you loads of money and it's get more eyeballs, more more competitive contacts, more TV money, fine. Go do that. Brilliant. But you, you can't then just cut off most of the, the developing nations, um, which at the minute is what they're doing. This one will run and run. Um, we'll just keep our fingers crossed. Back to the domestic game, and we'll finish up here. Two games uh, Leinster have played so far, one loss, one win. How do you think their season is likely to go And what, from what you've seen so far, which obviously isn't very much, none of the internationals are back, but you've got a particular story. I think about a, a Clontarf club player, not getting very close to, I think, 30 years old, uh, making his Leinster debut. Uh, you wrote about that in the, in the offload for the, for the Irish Times today. Yeah, Dylan Donlan, Galway native, Fluent Irish speaker, actually. Uh, parents sent him to Clongos because he loved rugby. Um, so we boarded in Clongos, even though he's from Galway. So a bit of a, a, a traditional and untraditional route into the game. Leinster and Connacht underage, Ireland under-20s during a junior world championship in 2014. Uh, didn't make it. Went to Biarritz because they had an Irish coach for a while. Went to Yorkshire because Stuart Lancaster sent him over there because he had connections to Leinster and Yorkshire because he's from there. Didn't make it long as a pro. Not sure exactly how long ago he quit, but he's he's now a sales rep in Dublin and plays. He's captains Clontarf in the amateur All Ireland League. And yeah, and he got a phone call on, on last Monday saying we've no hookers. Can you come in for a week? And he went in and he got ten minutes off the bench uh, on Saturday. So what it's a great it's a story. Great, it's a great story, and it's also it's it's another sign of how embedded the game is in Ireland because you can be an amateur. Amateur. I don't know why I said it so strangely. That you can be an amateur, but you can, and you can play a decent standard of club rugby and still be physically developed enough to go up and step up and play in a professional game. Is he is he physically big enough and strong enough to go off and play in a Champions Cup final against La Rochelle? Probably not. But he did play against the South African side for ten minutes and held his own and was part of the winning outfit. It was a break glass in case of emergency situation. But there's a sign of how embedded the game is in Ireland that amateurs can, in theory, make the step up and not be in danger. Well, in practice. Not just in theory. Well, we'll see. I mean, ten minutes is not a long level of long, a lot of practice. But uh, Leinster still have any the hooker that they thought might be fit. I don't think he's fit this week, so I think there's a decent chance that um, he gets another cameo off the bench next week. Any young people coming through in Leinster that you tip or recommend we keep an eye on over the next yeah, season or two? 
Oh yeah, well the one that nobody would have heard of is, is the tight head that's coming up, Rory McGuire. He's looked he's looked pretty good. Um massive, massive man. And we remember we were talking about how the one position you worry about for Ireland in their four years' time is tight head prop. This guy's a, a furlong size unit. I haven't seen enough of him play to know how good he is, but you look at him and you go, right, well he's got the size requirements to play at that position, which is arguably the, the hardest thing to have. Um so yeah. But I mean, but Leinster did lose their opening match of the season. They they've thrown the kids, they've thrown even younger kids than they normally do, to be honest, uh, at the problem of internationals being away, and they struggled in week one. Whereas all the other provinces have been, they're the only province to lose a game this season. Um, Munster looked pretty good. Uh, Ulster have looked average, but managed to scrape two wins. And Connacht are looking really good. New coaching ticket. They're um, they're doing some good things out west. So Irish rugby still in fine fettle. Okay, Nathan, thanks very much for that. Uh, What we'll do now is probably take a little bit of a hiatus now that the Rugby World Cup is over. But I think that two things I'd like to do with this podcast over the next while is, A, keep an eye on Leinster's season. Uh, Then when there's something interesting to talk about it, we will talk about it, subject to your availability. And, of course, uh, frighteningly quickly, we're going to have the Six Nations. So if you could find some time during that very busy period for you, that would be great. So for now, a huge thank you to Nathan Johns, journalist with the Irish Times, uh, writes all kinds of really interesting columns uh, at the moment on the sports pages. Uh, He has been on other pages uh, as well, uh, but at the moment is is on the sports desk. Uh, Just one fascinating article from Left Field uh, was uh, an interview, an article about a, a woman rugby player, Irish international, I think, Nathan, that was right, and she's doing a PhD. Um, Really, really fascinating stuff. So well done. Again, a big thank you, and we'll speak to you very soon. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.